I mean, simply put, if you're you're in this industry for the long term, it's it's the right thing to do in my mind to to give back and be part of it. This industry gave my family its livelihood for over a hundred years, really, and、mm-hmm. being part of these trade groups is a way to not only give back but you know, keep a true pulse on the industry, drive initiatives that help the industry, and of course, create relationships with some pretty amazing people. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Rebecca Polly, Deputy Editor at Box Office Pro, the Pulse of Theatrical Exhibition.、I'm、joined here today by Russ Fisher of Box Office Studios, which provides editorial content to movie theaters.、Uh, Russ, how you doing? Pretty good, thanks. Russ, I'm I'm really glad you're back on the podcast, joining us today because I rely on you for WGA, SAG, AFTRA, you know, big cinema news whisperer here. So you're gonna. We're going to give us an update on what's been happening, or what has sadly maybe not been happening over the past few weeks, because we do still have、uh, set after on strike, even after the WGA has has come to their own very good deal.、Uh, then, of course, it's、uh, we're going to swiftly move on to Taylor Swift and her ninety-seven million dollar domestic opening. In our feature segment this week, we are speaking to Ron Kruger of Santikos Theaters, who is winning an award at Show East, which is Kicking off next week. A quick plug for a panel that I am moderating on Wednesday morning at 11:30 in Miami on premium experiences. Definitely a hot topic and one that I'm really excited to dive into with the panelists. One of whom is Wimbyans of Cineonic, which coincidentally is our、uh, sponsor of today's episode. I was really excited to speak to Dan Huerta, their technical solutions director. They have a, a new screen out. I don't know if Russ had you read anything about this, but it's like, all right, the laser projection is already so crisp and so beautiful. But like, if we make a screen that's tailor fit to it, it can like take it up a few more notches. But before all that, a quick word from our sponsor, Cineonic. This episode of the Box Office Podcast is sponsored by Cineonic, a Barco company, a pioneer celebrated for its breakthrough cinema laser projection, captivating audiences with breathtaking visuals. With more than one hundred thousand projectors installed, Cineonic is trusted by exhibitors worldwide to deliver high-quality experiences that keep their customers coming back for more. From the booth and the screen to the moviegoer. Cineonic's all-laser portfolio offers an elevated, efficient, and eco-friendly solution for every screen. Ready to go laser? Contact an expert today at cineonic.com. Many thanks to, to Cineonic for sponsoring this episode of the Box Office Podcast. Before we get into anything else, all right, Russ, what's up? What's is this strike going to end anytime soon? Is it going to end by award season? What are what are we looking at? Oh man, you are not going to get me to do something so foolish as as pin <laughs> down a date, even in the most tentative sense. Date, month, hopefully year. Hopefully it'll be twenty twenty three. But at this point, it's still kind of yeah, it's not. tough right now. <laughs> so the short version is that、uh, SAG-AFTRA and AMPAS sat down at the negotiating table last week, and they did. Some negotiating. They were in there for a couple of days, but then after the session、uh, last Wednesday, AMPTP basically said, 
we're out, and they walked away. There seemed to be a couple of sticking points. One is the continued conversation over AI. The Actors Union wants performer consent and performer identity to be protected, and they obviously want performers to be able to continue to be paid for their work, even if you know what's basically being used is a digital double that was created on any given show. You know, the producers group seems to feel a little bit differently. So that's a sticking point. There was also the biggest one, which was sort of pointed out by Netflix's Ted Sarandos and comments that were kind of became a, a bit of a flashpoint for the conversation last week was revenue stream and actors getting residuals. And basically it had been made clear that the earlier SAG proposal for revenue stream share was not going to fly with producers. So SAG kind of pivoted and, and basically said like, hey, how about we base something based on subscriber counts? And it's like- Yeah, they just uh, said, I saw something from Ted Sarando's search to the effect of uh, like, now they want a portion of every of every single subscriber. It's going to be next. I mean, what, what actually was the ask there? The ask was basically uh, a profit split proposal, which would cost the studios 57 cents per subscriber annually, is my understanding, not daily or weekly or monthly, 57 cents annually per subscriber of people that are paying, you know, $16 a month or, you know, whatever it is, depending on the service. And again, this was a pivot. This was basically replacing a different request for a different sort of residual revenue share. And Sarandos called it uh, a levy on subscribers and said that it was a bridge too far in the conversation. Really made it sound like that proposal yeah, was the thing. Very, it seemed very very affronted by it from what I read. Yeah, Sarandos seemed to take offense. And then, you know, someone like uh, Duncan Crabtree Ireland, who's the chief negotiator for SAG-AFTRA, he took offense with Sarandos's comments saying like, uh, it's preposterous, you know, so there's a lot of ground to cover between these two groups right now is SAG-AFTRA basically says that they have made it clear to the producers that they are willing to come back to the table anytime. Producers just have to set a date and say, hey, let's sit down again. And and as of the morning of Monday, October 16th, as we record this, that has not yet happened. So where we're at right now is waiting. You know, these two groups had not negotiated since July, I think. And so now they're they're both, you know, the actors are waiting for producers to say, let's sit down again. We can hope that they get back to the table shortly. But at this point, there's really no reasonable estimation. Obviously, we all want the strike to end, but it's impossible to say how quickly that might happen. I mean, this is this really seems like this is when the heat starts to get turned back up. Obviously, there's no good time for this to happen in terms of marketing and, and promotion and all those elements. But at least you look at, uh, you know, September or October, you know, it's a pretty quiet time on the release slate normally. But I mean, I just keep thinking about where we get closer and closer to award season. A lot of these smaller art house films that really rely on the cast being out there, like pounding the pavement, like Michelle Yeoh last year, everything, everywhere, all at once, just, you know, telling her story and, and how she felt about the film. And like that part is so important, specifically during award season with the studios campaigning and the actors getting out there. 
I mean, I really hope it gets it gets wrapped up before then because I I feel like it's going to be uh, particularly bad for those smaller productions. Yeah, I think I mean I think bringing up everything everywhere all at once is a really good point. That that movie's awards season success was based very much, as you say, on those actors getting out in front of literally everybody. And they did that for months. Everybody, and everybody that, everywhere, everything. All. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, you've got a title like Priscilla, you know, the Sofia Coppola movie, which that sort of title would really, again, live and die on the actors getting out to talk to people about the movie. Without that being able to happen, there's a reason to fear that people might not realize that some of these movies even exist in the first place. Definitely a concern. Hopefully we'll, we'll see a resolution to the dispute sooner rather than later, or at least a conversation, <laughs> the, the two parties sitting down and, and then coming to a, to a common agreement here. Because, yeah, I mean, this, this time of year is, is when we really, really need that promotion. We, the cinema industry, you know, the studios, the producers, but, you know, also in particularly the cinemas, a lot of art house independent cinemas that maybe don't have the marketing resources are really going to rely on some of this, uh, this red carpet studio content. So fingers crossed there. If you uh, yeah, check up on uh, boxofficepro.com and listen to the podcast every week on Thursday, we will, uh, we will have the labor issues whisper us and to update us on, on what's happening in that regard. So we may not have the actors out there pounding the pavement for these studio films, but we do have Taylor Swift, uh, who came out with her Eras tour over the weekend. The big question here on, on this podcast, at least, was, is Taylor Swift, the Eras tour, going to cross the $100 million mark on its opening weekend? It appears that it did not, but it came very, very close at $97 million based on, that's estimated grosses. As, as Russ said, we're recording this early Monday afternoon, so we are still waiting for those actuals to come in. But I think even regardless of, of not hitting the somewhat arbitrary $100 million mark, still a really great showing, obviously, uh, for the film, tied with the Joker, roughly, for the top October weekend of all time. As I said, that they're so close that at this point, we only have estimates. We're not going to be really sure if it, if it broke that record, but at least it came close. I mean, it broke the record for highest grossing concert film of all time. But I think it did that like a week before it even came out. <laughs> it had $100 million in pre-sales, I think, October 5th. So yeah, it was, a, it was a really good good week. Uh, good good week for Taylor Swift fans. Russ, did you see any of those like videos of social media of people really having a good time with it in the auditorium. I know that was something that I've, I've heard from, from some cinema people, like, how are we going to let people know they can enjoy it and have fun and they don't have to just sit? And it seems like from what I saw, that wasn't so much of an issue. Yeah, uh, people seem to have a great time. And of course, that led to some hand-wringing on the part of folks who consider cinemas to be a space in which no, you know, it's like uh, the old Footloose with Kevin Bacon, like we just don't dance here. Everybody turned into preacher John Lithgow. That reference probably doesn't make <laughs> any sense to anybody, but it's okay. Yeah, you know, people who went to see the Taylor Swift movie seem to have a really good time with it. I don't know how representative those videos were. I've certainly seen smaller recordings where it's just like, oh, there's 10 teenagers down in front dancing. But I mean, for a movie like that, great. And also, frankly, you know, I think I'm sure I've said this here before, but 
We've talked a lot on the podcast about a demographic that hasn't really come back to theaters since COVID, maybe in part because they never really started to going to, started going to theaters before COVID. And if the Taylor Swift movie is what gets some of the Gen Z demo into movie theaters, then like, yeah, great. You know, we'll teach them to be quiet in the movie the next time. But for this one, like you get a gimme, let, go have fun. Yeah, definitely. Look, I, I do make me wonder, though, about, you know, how it performed or, or how the audience was across different types of theaters. Like, how did the Taylor Swift concert film do at Dine-In Cinemas? Are, are people sitting down and buying burgers for the Eras tour? Like, what about maybe smaller, uh, smaller independent cinemas? I got a, got a message from a, a cinema owner, cinema owner uh, in, in New Zealand talking about the difficulty as an independent cinema of even getting the film as opposed to you know obviously all of all of the major chains really really had no problem with that and i've been hearing other you know i don't know concerns is maybe putting it too strongly but maybe if you are a smaller art house theater you're not going to have that huge auditorium you're not going to have those those big screens maybe i mean if you weren't playing taylor swift this weekend there really was not a ton else for you i know that everyone at the cinema was with these <laughs> pretty much this weekend yeah absolutely i think the, my favorite things were i know that in a bunch of regional markets some of the first uh, like press and preview screenings of killers of the flower moon were set up right next to <laughs> theaters that had some of the first screenings of the taylor swift movie and you know i talked to a handful of people who were discussed the the, the bleed through of sound that they experienced from one theater to the other. Some interesting soundtrack choices from Scorsese for this one. Wow. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's kind of a you know live remix of uh, Killers of the Flower Moon. So we'll see how that plays out uh, this week. Well, uh, definitely, yeah. Well, uh, interesting to see. I mean, there's really been no nothing really comparable to this to this film in terms of the scope of it. It really makes me wonder what those second week holds are, are going to look like. Looking at international numbers uh, for a second, internationally, the film was uh, distributed by Trafalgar, which has a lot of experience, obviously, with events and releases, specifically concert films. They did a Metallica one recently that did very well, a lot of K-pop, BTS. Internationally, what we heard from AMC on Monday morning is an estimated uh, 31 to 33 million, uh, bringing in a global total somewhere in the kind of 126, 130 million range for the entire weekend, ranking the number one at the box office in the US, the UK, Mexico, Australia, Germany, and the Philippines. And with a handful of, of major markets, including Brazil and South Korea, the film is is still to come out. Also on IMAX, the film uh, the film over indexed as this, uh, films tend to do on IMAX. Thirteen million haul uh, globally on six hundred and thirteen IMAX screens, and then uh, eleven million or eleven percent of the domestic gross in North America. So it's definitely I'm always excited to. You know, see studios and then see cinemas try out new new things, new concepts, especially when it comes to the the marketing and the the showmanship and the the ballyhoo of it all. You know, not the best circumstances for why this movie's coming out now, with obviously the the strike and things moving off the calendar. But it's it's still a very interesting moment. Spot number two, we have The Exorcist Believer dropping fifty eight percent to eleven million estimated in its second week. 
Number three, uh, Paw Patrol, the Mighty Movie from Paramount, seven million. Fourth place, Saw X from Lionsgate in its third week, earning a 5.7 million. Only a 27% drop on this one on its third week, which, I mean, especially when you consider that horror films in particular tend to be really, really front loaded. Like, I saw that 27% drop number and I was like, whoa, I mean, I know the word of mouth has been good. I kind of want, I have never actually seen one of the Saw films, but <laughs> I, don't know. I know there's lore that I would have to catch up with. With this movie, I think it's really much more about a uh, guy angry at a uh, medical system kills people. And that, that, you know, that's something I think a lot of us can uh, relate to. Yeah. <laughs> and then closing out the top five uh, from 20th Century Studios in its third week, The Creator, $4.3 million. Up next week, in addition uh, to round two of Taylor Swift's The Heiress Tour, we have Killers of the Flower Moon, which is being uh, released domestically through Paramount Pictures. It is an Apple Studios release. It's kind of one of two really big, high-profile uh, films this year, which are made by streamers who are putting them out in collaboration uh, with traditional more, you know, cinema screening outfits to put them in theaters. The other one uh, being from Ridley Scott and Napoleon, which I'm very excited to see. So uh, yeah, Killers of the Flower Moon, given that Killers of the Flower Moon, a, a little a little bit of an unknown quantity there, but our predictions, we have 29 to 38 million for the opening weekend, 97 to 141 million for the entire, uh, the entire domestic span. Though again, we don't know when this is going to actually hit Hit, uh, hit hit streaming, hit Apple. So that's uh, a figure that can change uh, up or down either way, I think. Russ, you, you said you saw some, uh, you got some people who, who got a little taste of Killers of the Flower Moon, a little Taylor Swift, uh, you know, put in there. Uh, what have you been hearing about the film? People seem to, uh, I've heard basically nothing bad about Killers of the Flower Moon. You know, the general opinion seems to be that it is, a terrific film from Scorsese. There's a lot of conversation about the running time because it's not short. You know, some people that I know and trust have have said things like, eh, actually, you know, it could have even been a little bit longer and we would have been okay there. So I'm curious about the degree to which Killers of the Flower Moon is really crossing over to a general audience. Certainly, I am part of a very cinema enthusiast, film nerd kind of crowd. So the awareness of the title is very high amongst my niche demographic. You get out to everybody else. And yeah, I don't know. I don't know how much people know about the movie. But, you know, I think Scorsese's name plus the cast. Again, it would be nice if that cast could be out doing promotion. That would really help a movie like this. Actually, I, I didn't go out uh, to, to the cinemas this weekend apart because I was at a memorial service, actually. And like just, you know, chatting with the people, people there not in our in our niche really at all. Killers of the Flower Moon did come up and it's runtime and people are like excited to see it. And like, oh, I saw Oppenheimer, like I can handle Killers of the, the runtime's no problem. So it was a little, it's like streams crossing r- runtime conversation and outside of the film nerd slash film Twitter community. But yeah, I'm like, definitely definitely excited for this one. And I mean, when you, you have Martin Scorsese and De Niro and DiCaprio and, and this cast, I mean, it, it feels like one of those, like with Oppenheimer, you know, you want to, you want to see it really in the best, uh, best screen, best conditions that you can. Certainly a cinema with comfortable seats because of that running time. But yeah. Check back in on boxofficepro.com to see our uh, predictions as they evolve throughout the coming days. 
And next, after this short break, we're going to hear uh, from, again, our, our sponsors of this episode, Cineonic, specifically Dan Huerta, Technical Solutions Director at Cineonic, on this new Cineonic Laser Screen 2.4. After that, we'll be hearing from Ron Kruger, Chief Operating Officer at Santicos Grand Theaters and Amstar, receiving the Sala and Pasadena Award at Show East starting in just a few days. Russ, thanks so much uh, for being on the podcast this week. and. Uh, yeah, have a, have a good rest of your week. We'll be right back. And we are back on the Box Office Podcast with Dan Huerta, the Technical Solutions Director at Cineonic. Dan, how are you doing today? I'm great, Rebecca. Thanks for asking. Yeah, so I, we're recording this, uh, this, this episode kind of in the run-up to Show East. I'm definitely excited to see what Cineonic has, uh, has to present there. You know, you can, you can hear about all these great new technologies, but unless you really get the chance to, to see them up close and personal, you really don't get a sense of how good laser projection technology has, has gotten <laughs> over these past few years. That's true. It's uh, come a long way. Laser uh, it hasn't been around for very long, but at the same time, uh, major improvements and both in the business and the technical part of the business. And of course, Cineonic, I mean, you're you're one of the, the major players in that field. You're known for providing exceptional quality in laser projection, and you partner with AMC, Cinemark, Santicos, chains and cinemas all around the world to bring those bright, sharp, laser-projected images to moviegoers, which is why I was a little surprised when I got a, a, a press release in my inbox saying that Cineonic is coming out with a screen. What is the Cineonic Laser Screen 2.4, and why, uh, why did Cineonic create it? Well, Rebecca, initially it was conceived as a premium large format or PLF screen, but during a long period of product development, we determined or realized it has the potential to do more than just PLF large screen uh, venues, if you will. It has the potential to elevate the laser movie going experience at auditoriums of all shapes and sizes, whether they be 2D or 3D. And at Cineonic and Barco, we're always looking for ways to innovate and add value in the process. So it was initially uh, developed as a PLF solution, and it ends up being something that can elevate the standard experience across the board. That that's something that is that is so important. We talk at shows like Show East about how uh, critical the premium experience is to bringing in moviegoers, but you really don't want to use lose sight of the fact that you want every screen to have that premium look. You want every, your standard screen to really provide that, that beautiful experience to your moviegoers. We know that the, the Barco series for projectors paired with the new screen, you know, they augment each other to kind of showcase uh, the projectors off to the, the, the best possible, uh, the best possible versions of themselves. Can you, without, I'm, I'm going to try to, without being too techy, how does that happen? What is it about this screen that makes the Cineonic laser projectors look so good? Well, there's both the technical and the business element part of that. It maximizes the presentation efficiency by providing a higher gain screen, which means you can actually get the light levels that you need or desire using a lower powered projector, which also uh, is, is can offer the potential to deploy a lower cost projector without sacrificing quality, reducing energy costs and providing you know a, a lifetime extension of the paired 
Barco Series 4 projector and our new 2.4 gain screen. As far as once you get that established, you can still run the same DCI luminance levels on your screen, whether it be 2D, 3D, and whether it be small, medium, or large auditorium. So what this does is it has this, it has very similar characteristics to a lower gain screen, but provides you that flexibility both from a presentation technology perspective as well as an energy-saving business perspective. Now, when you talk about gain, again, just for people who are, are maybe on the, the different side of the cinema industry and, and aren't, aren't familiar with the terms, I mean, this is just the level of power that is getting thrown at the screen? Yeah, think of it as kind of a reflectivity multiplier. So you can have a Unity or matte white screen, which has a gain of one. This particular screen, our new proprietary Cineonic laser screen, with has a 2.4 gain. So 2.4 times the, the, the light reflectivity coming out of the lens and onto the screen as a matte white screen. So it does give you a lot more flexibility, again, from a projector choice, as well as being able to play really bright 2D and 3D images. I mean, we've all heard horror stories about uh, 3D screenings being muddy and, and, and too dark. And, and this just kind of creates a more uniform uh, brightness and, and lightness on the screen, it sounds like. Well, it all boils down to presentation quality if you're a moviegoer. And the great thing about laser projection in general, especially laser projection by Cineonic, is that it does give the owner-operator of a cinema extreme flexibility, both from a day-to-day -day sustainable image quality perspective, because you never have degradation of the light source like you do with xenon lamps. So you're always going to get a bright, crisp image. We have What we've done is we have developed this new screen to pair closely with those Cineonic laser projectors, not just for presentation quality, but also for the cost of ownership, if you will. Yeah, it's an important uh, element of sustainability, too, as, uh, as cinemas look for ways to maybe reduce, reduce their carbon footprint. Having to use less power certainly is a, is a big factor there. No question. And in some, some cases, you, know, you can save up to 70% on your energy costs moving from uh, lamp to laser projection. I like a good savings. <laughs> and I know, I yes, know, uh, <laughs> yes. Every, everyone does in today's environment, for sure. Yeah, I know our cinema partners definitely do do as well. How did you work with cinema partners, too, with exhibitors in the development of this screen? Our approach to testing an in-market laser to screen pairing experience basically took into account thousands of auditoriums worldwide, allowed us to learn, identify, and hone in on the right combination of parameters Together with our development partner, Strong MDI, we approached the Cineonic Laser Screen 2.4 with the same process which we use to develop and test all of our solutions, our new innovations. We did have multiple prototypes of the screen, went through multiple stages of testing and development, including installations and live cinema settings across multiple continents. We did um, comparison testing with multiple screen types and different gains. We used industry standard test patterns and trailer content at lab and theater facilities. And we, the, the funny thing is, and, and interesting, we had both technical and very non-technical staff look at the new screen and they all noticed the difference. If you're a moviegoer, even if you're not very technical, when you go to your local movie theater, you want to see the movie the way the creative talent intended it to be shown, whether the, that be the audio or the visual side of it. So we always take that into account when we're looking at new innovations and new technologies to go along with the new innovation ideas. So when this screen idea came to light, we looked at things like audio quality, speech intelligibility, 
a single perforation screen. We didn't want to go with multiple types of perforation. I know it seems seems like a minor detail, but we went with microperf only for both the audio transmission performance as well as the image performance and associated image enhancements. And also with the when you're using less power, extend the life of the projector, increase efficiency, and ov overall lower your cost of operation like we talked about. So multiple benefits. We took all of the business and technical parameters into account when we were designing and developing this screen. There are a lot of different factors in the screen that you put a lot of, of time and attention and energy and knowledge into. Like not only is the light and the, the, the brightness and the image quality more uniform because the screen is meant to be used with the projector, like the audio quality is also going to be uh, going to be better because it's only like the single perforation screen. Yeah, we again, a lot of people look at a screen as only the from an image parameter perspective, but we wanted to look at it from an overall presentation quality perspective. So we've had one screen running operational in a day-to-day -day operation basis at a U.S. theater since the beginning of April of this year, and everyone loves it both 2D and 3D, and it's, uh, it's, it's been a success for us so far, and we look forward to further innovations on this particular screen model, and who knows, you might, might see something even, even more in the future as it relates to innovations on the audiovisual side coming out of Cineonic, where we are a cinema born and bred uh, part of the business, and we love what we do, and, and we're excited to help not just uh, the cinema owners, operators, but the entire industry, including production, post-production, the entire ecosystem. We want to be a, a key companion to all aspects of that. We're speaking a little bit advanced in, in Show East. Can you give us a little a little hint, a little teaser of uh, where we can find Cineonic at Show East and what sort of, uh, what sort of things you'll be showing off? I don't think we'll have a, a, one of our new screens at Show East, but we will have representatives there and they can certainly explain uh, to anyone what the product is and how to get a hold of it. We do have uh, the availability of some sample pieces and I'm sure as we get uh, expanded into the rest of this calendar year and into early 2024, we will be showing this to multiple exhibitors at different locations across the world. So much more to come and many more demonstration locations and opportunities over the course of the next six to 12 months. And uh, on that note, Dan, thank you so much uh, for joining us and uh, excited to to see what Cineonic has on the show floor at Show East. It's my first time at the show, so it's uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. After this short break, we will be hearing from Ron Kruger, COO at Santicos Theaters, and receiving the Saul M. Hassanin Award at this year's Show East. Be right back. So um, yeah, congratulations on on the Salah Hassanin Award. That's a big deal. Did you know him personally at all? You know, I, I sadly I didn't have the chance to ever uh, meet Salah. Mm -hmm. uh, however, you know, my good friend and our longtime film buyer Doug Whitford worked for Salah back mm -hmm. in his United Artists days, mm -hmm. and you know he always had shared some of the warm-hearted stories about Salah, as well as uh, you know some stories that uh, demonstrated how shrewd of a businessman was he he was, but. Uh, you know, charity was always a obviously a big part of his uh, his mantra, but mm -hmm. uh, no, unfortunately, didn't know him. I mean, it's a it's a huge part of this industry. I, I feel like I mean, variety and the cinema industry in the U.S. You kind of can't can't imagine one without the other. Exactly. No, it's, it's great that this uh, industry is so focused on charity. You know, whether it's Will Rogers or Variety, you know, and I think uh, 
out of Memphis, uh, the folks at uh, St. Jude are trying to make some mid-roads uh, as well uh, with some on-screen promotional activities. I mean, Santicos is, I mean, to switch to switch topics, I mean, yeah. they're, they're a really community-involved cinema themselves. You know, a lot of proceeds go into community. I know they do a lot of, like, coat drives and, and a lot of work with, you know, just within their local communities and within Texas. I mean, it sounds like when, you know, when I spoke to, to Tim Handron at Santicos per, you know, I sent you a list of questions. Is that kind of tie into a, a, the cultural similarity between Santicos and, and Southern? Is that something that, that you're excited to kind of participate in going forward? Yeah, I mean, you know, both organizations have a focus on taking care of guests and mm-hmm. taking care of employees. You know, so that's some definite commonalities. And, you know, Grand and Amstar locations, we have some mm-hmm. really amazing teams led by management, many of which have been in the industry as long as I have. So, you know, really, truly blessed there. And in our theaters, we continue to serve our guests well with, you know, I think we're industry leading with you know, 90% of our locations with refiners and expanded food and beverage. And, mm-hmm. and of course, it takes a little... uh uh, liquor sometimes to get uh, <laughs> some of these movies down. So 100% of our locations have some level of bar service. And you know, even our southern footprint, uh, they love their daiquiris. Uh, that, that, oh, yeah, man. really love that. But, you know, we're excited about the acquisition by Santicos that can help kind of elevate those standards even further, you know, and the, the charity focus uh, that we've been able to do uh, in the southern universe gets to continue under Santicos, and especially with – yeah, their charity work as it relates to, you know, we're working with them on mm-hmm. uh, the food drive right now, and we'll do a toy drive uh, later this year. And, you know, they've been uh, partners with Variety on, on the Gold Heart program as well. So mm-hmm. look forward to just, you know, some bigger and better things with the combined organization. Interesting and, and just just really smart. It seems like you're sticking to the, the fundamentals of making sure that your people are taken care of, making sure that your people are providing a good experience. You know, there's that that personal element of, of the cinema experience. I mean, I know everything's everything's kiosks now, but <laughs> the personal experiences, it seems like you're really focusing on when it comes to this merger. Because that's what I find missing. I mean, something that, like that, the worst experience for me is not like, oh, the, the print was a little scratched or this or that. It's, it's, it's a personal element that leaves a bad taste in your mouth if it goes wrong. Right. Yeah. You got a, a greeter at the front door who doesn't make eye contact with you and say hi or has a little snarl on their face because they're having a bad day. Yeah, that, that's not the best way because you know, guests are coming to the theaters to escape and they, they want a good experience all the way around. And it starts with the employees. I mean, and so much of the film experience or the film, you know, the way we talk about the, the cinema industry now is what can a cinema give that is that someone can't get? at home in terms of the technology, in terms of immersive sound, in terms of premium screens or like cinema entertainment centers, you know, the next kind of new, new big thing, you know, Southern and Santicos and Southern obviously kind of got into dining or realized the potential of dining really early on. Santicos with the entertainment centers, you know, you're, you're always kind of looking forward to what the next state's going to be to draw people in. You know, how do you, you assess, like, as, a, as a, in your COO role, the, the risk of that? You know, how, how do you know what had to stay on the cutting edge but not the bleeding edge? What kind of research goes into that or... Yeah, I mean, it's it's really about uh, networking and staying uh, aware of what the opportunities are out there. But in terms of, you know, the risk assessment process, mm-hmm. I mean, we model, you know, our projects a number of different ways with, you know, high, immediate, intermediate, and low risk assumptions. Mm-hmm. And, you know, get comfortable with assumptions and double check them with peers, if you will. And, you know, if it takes 
visiting a site that has something uh, deployed, we'll, we'll do that and talk with that operator. And you know, it really comes down to uh, getting comfortable with those assumptions. And then if it fits our investment criteria, mm-hmm. just decide to move forward or not. Mm-hmm. And thankfully, with the acquisition by Santicos versus you know, the private equity ownership uh, Southern had before, we feel we could take a longer term approach in our investment horizon. Mm-hmm. So that, that, I think, helps the opportunities that exist for the Grand and Amstar locations. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, if you, if you say to someone, you know, outside money, like, oh, no, bowling's really bowling's really making a, a big comeback now. Like, that's a that's a big deal. And that's doing a, a really uh, a good job of enticing in, in moviegoers. Uh, private private money might be like, what? I don't I don't know if I quite believe that. But someone else in the industry right. would know and would know to give it time because it is, you know, things like that are, are a big investment of funds. Right. And, you know, in, in the case of, you know, a couple markets that we, we look at, or at least you know, a couple of theaters, it, you know, it would take some major renovation, demolition and rebuild of a complex. And that, that's a sizable investment. And, you know, again, the private equity folks have a shorter time horizon on, on return than, you know, we're going to be fortunate with the Santicos folks. So the, the Grand and Amstar, they're keeping their original branding, right? At this, at this point anyway. I mean, that it's, you wouldn't want to throw that away. <laughs> No, no. I mean, you know, these locations have been in existence, you know, 20 plus years in a lot of these markets and there's brand equity, you know, with those names and they, they know it. Hey, we're going to go to the Amstar or the Grand tonight to go catch a movie. Why, why make a sign manufacturer, uh, that we have lots of friends of those in that industry. Why make them any richer when, uh, you know, it's really about you know, the, the brand equity that's already there. When did you start getting into when, when, when did you start working with with variety when when was that what's your history there because I know you've I mean it's been decades and you were the president and then a board member for Will Rogers but can you kind of walk me through how your involvement with those two groups started sure really it started shoot at one of my first show West 29 years ago mm-hmm. where I met uh, Stan and Jody Reynolds mm-hmm. and uh, yeah they were our insurance brokers at, at Warenberg at the time, but they they talked about uh, their excitement and things that they were doing with Variety. And there was a Variety tent in St. Louis. So I was able to get on that board and, uh, help and expand Warenberg's involvement with Goldheart activities, as well as uh, you know, they were running telethons at the time mm-hmm. uh, and, and supporting those sort of things. So it goes back you know, 20 plus years. And then what was it? Maybe... 15 years ago, when I moved over to Southern, Stan W. Reynolds, you know, their son, uh, and Jody approached me as uh, uh, there was some openings on U.S. Varieties Board uh, and uh, had a chance to step up there and uh, help them out and kind of work my way through the chairs there and start some initiatives with U.S. Variety. So we've had a couple of you know, presidents since my, my term there, but uh, we, you know, we continue to be relevant with the Gold Heart program and uh, sharing best practices, working with Variety International, uh, mm-hmm. helping out the, the tents in North America uh, for their uh, activities and initiatives that they have in place. So on the other side, you have your, your involvement with, with Variety and Will Rogers, and then there's the more like industry group, NATO, Toma side, the NAC. I've been to one NAC conference, and and it and there's there's there was a sense there of like you know you want to get more people involved in these industries. You want them to 
you know, go visit their local government officials and, and really advocate for them. And you need to be involved in, in things like that. Do you feel like if you're just a first time theater owner, you're getting into the business, what's your pitch to, to belong to some of these groups or to get involved in the community in, in that deeper way and in the way you are? Sure. I mean, simply put, if you're, you're in this industry for the long term, it's, it's the right thing to do in my mind to, to give back and be part of it. You know, this, this industry gave my family its livelihood for over a hundred years, really. And mm-hmm. being part of these trade groups is a way to not only give back, but, uh, you know, keep a true pulse on the industry, drive initiatives that help the industry. And of course, create relationships with some pretty amazing people across exhibition and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the concession supply side of things. So, you know, after 30 years, you know, some of my closest friends are, are in this industry. And without those relationships and involvement, just kind of recent terms, I don't know if we could have weathered the pandemic as mm-hmm. well as we did, sharing best practices and advocating for government relief the way we did to help uh, keep the lights on in order to take care of our employees and guests. Yeah, it's, I mean, I love the, the history of this industry and the, the legacy of it. And that's definitely kind of my, what caught me like, oh, this is actually really interesting. And then, you know, I got bit by the bug and 10 years later, I'm still, still writing about you. <laughs> well, and, you know, my great-grandfather, Fred Werenberg, who started Werenberg Theaters, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he was on a, a, a predecessor organization to Toma. I mean, I found a, a photo of him in one of this, our family scrapbooks of him on the cover of a magazine. So, I mean, it's been in the family. It's part of the expectation of, of giving back. And mm-hmm. uh, I wouldn't have it any other way. Thanks to our listeners once again for tuning in to this episode of the Box Office Podcast. Thank you to Cineonic, our sponsors for this episode. Really appreciate their support in making it possible for us to bring you this podcast. Thanks again to Russ Fisher, producer Chad Kenner, Dan Huerta of Cineonic, and Ron Kruger of Santico's Theaters. The Box Office Podcast is produced by The Box Office Company, Box Office Pro, and Record Edit Podcast. New episodes are out every Thursday, so please subscribe on your platform of choice and check in next week. Thanks. Bye.